Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be with all of you. Frida, it's always great to have you. Welcome back. And as we embark on this week's parsha, which is Parshas Yishlach, I think it's very important to mention something that a friend of mine always reminds me. Despite all the chaos in the world, we must remain positive, steadfast, and have a good outlook instead of a depressed or stressed one. I know that might be easier said than done, but today we will be discussing the management of stress and understanding our Israel identity in that context. So Parshas Vayishlach, this year, 2022, is titled Knowing and Owning My Yisrael Identity. This month, the month of Kislev, is sponsored by Albert and Cindy Benalum in honor of Gena Nash, a incredible matriarch and a shining example for her entire family. Her name, Golda Bas Avraham Aleha HaShalom, on her first yard site with love. And certainly we all join together to wish her Neshama and Aliyah and a bracha that her entire family continue to follow in her footsteps with her strength and perseverance and dedication to her family, which was absolute. This week is also dedicated with love to Alex and Danielle Galski in honor of the birth of Noah Galski, their daughter. Mazel tov to the entire Galski and David families. Uh, I don't know if many of you know this family or not. I think several of you do. They do live in Surfside, in case you would like to get to know them, and that's worth it. Uh, actually, Danielle works for United Hatzalah here in South Florida and does major, major work for them. This week, in addition to that Mazel Tov, we are also celebrating the birthday of Aharon Eli, son of Ariel and Lily First, as today is his Hebrew birthday. And we join Lily with a Mazel Tov for her son and wish that uh, she and her husband should continue to see tremendous nachas from him, from their children, and God willing, all their descendants and future descendants. Mazel Tov on the birthday to Aharon Eli. Beautiful name, bud. Okay, it is no secret that the world is becoming more befuddling and unsettling to navigate. Here's a small, albeit incomplete list of topics that are in the minds of many people that I personally encounter. I imagine it's the same for all of you. Healthcare, job security, inflation, competent laborers, downsizing, moral character among the masses, or perhaps sometimes the seeming lack thereof. Quality of education, even in this country, the United States of America. Financially, inability to retire. Increased violence in the general population and severe stress slash anxiety. There is no doubt that the stress levels in the USA and in many countries in the world have continued to increase over the last several years. I decided instead of quoting statistics to just refer you to Google. I'll do that. Hang on one second. I just, I'm going to ask everybody to Google the American Institute of Stress if you wish to see a plethora of information. Yes, that is an actual institution, the American Institute of Stress. So on top of all the normal everyday challenges that I just mentioned, which the entire world faces, we Jews have to contend with very real racial threats and recent uptick in anti-Semitism here in the USA, as well as worldwide. Not to scare everyone too much, but a good friend of mine, some of you are familiar with him, his name Dr. Joel Finkelstein, who is head of the National Contagion Research Institute, has recently tracked online the appearance of the word pogrom. And uh, in the audio, you can't hear me, but just imagine a graph that's basically flat and then a sharp spike upwards as in very tall spike upwards over the last few weeks. Okay, anyways, uh, there was a an article in the Washington Post this past Shabbos about anti-Semitism, et cetera. It's worth looking at it. It was on the front page of the, of the Washington Post in which our friend is quoted and is based on his research. So it is well known that our rabbis have long ago taught us to look at Parshas Vayishlach for strategies to combat anti-Semitism as well as existential threats to our Jewish nation. 
In fact, just look at much of the Ramban commentary to the beginning verses of Vayishlach and you'll see that Ramban is full of these ideas. In today's discussion, I would like to look at Parshas Vayishlach and indeed the life of Yaakov Avinu until this point, not only as a template for how to deal with anti-Semitism, but also how to deal with all types of stressful challenges and stresses. Indeed, one of the clearest proofs that we have so much to learn from our forefather Yaakov is the attitude and gratitude expressed by Yaakov at the beginning of Vayishlach. And when you understand it in context, you see why we have so much to learn. By way of background, last week's parsha concluded with Yaakov's narrow escape from Lavan after having worked tirelessly for Lavan for 20 years, right? And essentially receiving no pay from Lavan at all. Of course, this two-decade servitude to Lavan began with the chicanery of substituting Leah for Rachel and then demanding a second set of seven years of work from Yaakov. All of these trials and tribulations began with Yaakov acceding to his mother's insistence that he dress up like Esav and pretend to be Esav so that he receives the blessings from Yitzchak instead of Esav. So at the beginning of Yishlach, Yaakov receives the news from his own messengers that Esav hates Yaakov and is coming to battle with Yaakov accompanied by 400 generals. That's the way the rabbis learn. These are not just 400 men. They're 400 generals, each with their own army, if you can imagine that. Okay? Now, with all of this in mind, Yaakov was scared and Yaakov davens to Hashem, and here's what Yaakov says. And Yaakov said, Oh God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Yitzchak, O Hashem, who said to me, return to your native land and I will deal bountifully with you. I am unworthy of all the kindness that you have so steadfastly shown your servant with my staff alone, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. 20 years of servitude to the father-in-law to end all fathers-in-law, right? Plus living in mortal fear of his brother Esau and Yaakov declares, I am unworthy of all the kindness that you have steadfastly shown your servant. With my staff alone, I crossed this Yardin, and now I have become two camps. It is amazing to hear Yaakov Avinu utter the phrase, all the kindness that you have steadfastly shown your servant. With an uncle slash father-in-law like Lavan, who needs enemies? And yet this is still Yaakov's declaration. From this declaration of Yaakov alone, we clearly have an enormous amount to learn in terms of handling the trials and tribulations of life, not only with grace, but with gratitude. On top of all this is the fact that Yaakov was told by Hashem that Hashem would protect Yaakov where he went, and still, immediately thereafter, Yaakov experiences a two-decade period of endless work and manipulations supplied by Lavan. Yaakov Avinu must indeed be our paradigm. Now, hopefully, if I don't remember, somebody will remind me at the end to bring up the end of Yaakov's life, how we see this as well. Parashas Vayishlach contains many large topics with much storyline. Instead of looking at large swaths of verses, we will briefly outline the progression of topics and events contained in the parsha. It's still quite significant, but uh, it's shorter than going through tons of sentences. So number one. Yaakov sends messengers to his brother Esav, seeking to find favor in his eyes. According to Rashi, those messengers are angels. Number two, Esav comes to attack Yaakov, but is assuaged upon encountering the many gifts offered to him, plus the servile attitude professed by Yaakov. So Yaakov treats Esav like a master. Number three, Yaakov is attacked by an angel that the Torah here calls a man and wrestles with him and Yaakov prevails. Yaakov is wounded in his sciatic nerve and is left limping. Because of this, the Jewish people to this very day do not eat the sciatic nerve. That's what the Torah here says. Number four, this angel tells Yaakov that his name will be Yisrael because he strove, struggled, fought with people, namely Lavan and Esav and angels and prevailed over them. Number five, Yaakov and his children and wives bow to Esav, and he and Esav part ways peacefully. Number six, 
Yaakov builds his own house and resides 18 months in a place he names Sukkos. Number seven, Yaakov arrives whole and intact to the place called Shechem, buys there a tract of land for himself from the children of Hamor. Yaakov builds an altar in this place. <clears throat> Number eight, Dina is taken captive and assaulted by Shechem, the son of Hamor. Shechem and Hamor then request permission for Dina to marry Shechem. Number nine, the sons of Yaakov offer to make peace and integrate with Shechem and Hamor and the people of Shechem, providing that all the males undergo circumcision. Number 10, on the third day of their circumcision, the males of Shechem are attacked by the sons of Yaakov, including Shechem and Hamor. Number 11, at Hashem's behest, Yaakov and his sons travel to Beis El. Yaakov builds an altar and again names this place Beis El. Devorah, the nursemaid of Rivka, dies. Hashem appears to Yaakov and names him Israel. Hashem tells Yaakov that he is destined to increase and to father nations and kings, as well as to inherit Eretz Israel. Yaakov erects a monument and anoints oil, anoints it again, anoints it with oil, and again names this place Beis El. Number 12, Rachel Aminu dies on the road to Ephras while birthing her second son, Binyamin. Number 13, Reuven commits a misdeed regarding his father's concubine, maybe wife, but he nonetheless retains his position as firstborn among the brothers. Yaakov arrives home to Yitzchak, and though chronologically Yitzchak dies in approximately 20 years from this point in the Torah, his death is here recorded. And finally, number 14, Esau's descendants and kings of many centuries are listed at the end of our parsha. So there's a lot going on. Now, when you combine all of that with what we've learned to this point, beginning with Toledos, which is the prophecy to Rivka about her sons, the brachos, right, the, the raising of Yaakov and Esav, the brachos that Yaakov receives, is running away, and then the entire parish is Vayetze, and this whole deal with Lavan, the bottom line is that there's a lot to look at. So keeping all of this in mind, here are four significant overview questions. Number one. Why in the world does Yaakov send messengers, meaning angels, to Esau? Why not let sleeping dogs lie? Esau's not seemingly coming after Yaakov. Yaakov has just narrowly escaped Laban. Leave Esau alone. Why is he kind of provoking him? That's question number one. Question number two. What is the major purpose of adding the name Yisrael to Yaakov? Why is Yaakov named Israel specifically in Basel, and after the incident with Dina, instead of either at birth or not at all? What is going on with this name Israel, and how does it emerge suddenly after everything that we learned about Yaakov, but just and, and including just after the incident with Dina? Number three. How are we to understand the wrestling match that Yaakov has with an angel? Why is this angel in the Torah called a man? Because the Torah actually, at the beginning of the story, calls him a man. Why is he called a man? And then at the end of the story, when he names him Yisrael, or I should say when the angel says that Yaakov's name will become Yisrael, he says because Yaakov strove with people and with Elohim, referring to angels, right, referring to him. So we start off calling him a man, and then he's also an Elohim. Elohim. Why is that? And finally, from the moment in Parshas Vayetze that Yaakov embarks on his journey to Haran, angels are mentioned numerous times. Angels up and down the ladder. The dream that Yaakov has of an angel helping him with the sheep. The camps of angels at the end of Parshas Vayetze, and according to Rashi, the messengers that Yaakov Avinu sends to Esau are angels. And then the angel that we just mentioned in this battle with Yaakov. Why are angels a critical component in this entire storyline? That's our fourth question. So we have these questions. And again, the highlights of them are, why does Yaakov send messengers to Esau and provoke him? What is the major purpose and understanding of the name Israel, Basel? happening after Dina? How do we understand the wrestling match with the angel and this whole preponderance of angels throughout this storyline? 
So as a basic premise to answering the above, I suggest the following theorem. As human beings, we are meant to straddle two worlds as we are comprised of a physical body and an ethereal soul. I use the term ethereal intentionally because to some extent, all living things contain a soul, but the most ethereal of the souls is the human soul. That's the one that's breathed in by Hashem directly into the human being. So this is our composition, the physical body and the ethereal soul. Though we live in a physical world and our primary awareness is of all things physical, we have the capacity and responsibility to recognize the transcendent purpose of all physicality. The reason for this responsibility is that Hashem's intention for us, meaning for human beings, from the outset of creation, is that mankind is destined to experience infinite existence. Now, an important sidebar here is that we should understand, recognize the importance of the idea that God never necessarily intended that there should be anything other than a Yisrael, meaning a nation that recognizes transcendence, a nation that takes responsibility to rise above the physical aspect. That could have been all human beings. It didn't end up that way, but that was God's intention for all of humanity. So this is the point. We, the theorem is that we're comprised of these two elements, but that man's ultimate responsibility is to have a paradigm of transcendence and a responsibility to achieve that because that's what Hashem wants for human beings. So this philosophical premise of human transcendence is graphically and magnificently depicted with Yaakov's dream of angels going up and down a ladder that is affixed to the ground, but has its head, its top in the heavens. Based on this understanding, we can now begin to glimpse the depth of this vision that Yaakov has, plus the mission that Yaakov undertook when he intercepted the blessings that were destined for Esau, and then escaped to Lavan's house with the intentions of finding a wife and building a family. Yaakov's ultimate goal in this entire enterprise was to become a human being and a nation that achieved transcendence. Indeed, this latter was not only his prophecy, it was his dream. Literally, his dream, right? In other words, it wasn't, it's presented as a dream as though it's a prophecy, but I'm suggesting it's a dream in the aspirational sense of Yaakov Avinu. A major underpinning of the entire Yaakov and Esau saga is the battle between them to establish this world in which we live as a transcendent one or a mundane one. The essence of Yaakov is to view this entire world as infused with higher, infused with higher potential and purpose and spirituality, whereas Esau reduces that which is lofty and meaningful as something trivial and ultimately even denigrates his own birthright mission, right? So we clearly see the polar opposite extremes between Yaakov and Esau. We're gonna mention one more point and then we're gonna get into this practically right now. As per the prophetic message that Rivka receives, both of her children will be nations and monarchs, thus dictating the paradigms of the entire world. The younger, however, will prevail as the dominant worldview, despite Aesop's prowess and power in the physical realm. So this is very important. I'm suggesting that the prophecy that, that, that Rivka receives as a message when she goes to seek information from Hashem about her pregnancy is not just two kings are going to emerge from her, it's the two kings, meaning it is the two world views on power over the physical and spiritual realms of creation. That's my suggestion. And therefore, what's happening in that prophecy is that Hashem is telling her that though these two powers can theoretically work together, they can also battle each other, but no matter how you slice and dice the truth of the genetics 
both the physical and the spiritual genetics of these two boys, the fact is that the older will serve the younger. That means the world view that will prevail is the world view of Yaakov. We're going to discuss this practically right now. And then we're going to go into angels. The difference between having a transcendent worldview and a mundane worldview can be easily described as why does a person wish to become wealthy? Why does a person want to be rich? Does a person want to be rich in order to enjoy and achieve physical pleasure and the offerings of this physical world as his goal? Or does he want to in addition to having some of these physical pleasures and enjoy them, see it from the point of view that this is what God gave us to enjoy and appreciate the good that God gave to us, plus use these physical gifts and riches for a transcendent purpose. How does a person look at the purpose of the physical gifts that he acquires? Is it for a mundane purpose or is it for a transcendent purpose? Now, it's easy to see that much of the world is engaged in the pursuit of wealth for their own selfish, physical, temporary, and mundane pleasures. But let's not kid ourselves. Thank God there are many people in the world that do seek to use their wealth and bounty for the sake of good and that which is higher and that which is not just physical pleasure, but for the sake of the nobility and the greatness of a human being, whether it's money towards education or to expanding a person's horizon so that they see opportunities for themselves, money can be used for tremendously good purposes. Of course, we have hospitals and the arts and so many things that are not just simple pleasure of this world. So um, a very good reminder for us, right, for all of those you know, that are here on this class with me, is that we Jews obviously put the transcendent view as our ichor, right? As our main way and lens through which we see the universe. And to that end, we keep something called Shabbos. Shabbos is living proof that the way that we look at this world is not just for the pursuit of more money and more pleasure. We stop, we undertake a, um, a, uh, you know, a responsibility to seek spirituality on Shabbos, to learn Torah on Shabbos, to spend more time in shul on Shabbos, to spend time with family and speaking on Shabbos. All of these things are transcendent human endeavors. Uh, Joseph Rackman mentioned to me a beautiful story from his grandfather today, back in the early 1900s in Albany, New York, uh, where he had to close his business on Shabbos Somebody asked him, you know, how are you going to uh, make it? Uh, you know, how are you going to, you know, just close your, your doors on Shabbos? And, and, you know, what are you going to do with all that loss of income? And his grandfather responded, well, as soon as I resolved to myself that I would not be the wealthiest person in town, I actually found it pretty easy to close my doors on Shabbos. In other words, we don't close our doors on Shabbos and we don't keep Shabbos in order to become wealthy. We do it because we recognize the higher purpose of a human being, plus all the benefits that the higher purpose of a human being offers, the psychological benefits of the respite on Shabbos, right? The mental health benefits of taking that day and reminding ourselves not only to rest, but that there's a higher level and purpose to creation than everything that we see going on in the world. And that, I believe, is a very, very key message for any of us as we face major challenges in life. So we're going to come back to this, but here's the concept. If we look at all of our challenges, all of our trials and tribulations as having a higher purpose, not only, you know, I'm not talking about punishment so that we can get rewarded in the world to come. I'm talking about the way that these experiences shape us as better human beings, and that we have a higher goal and mission than having an easy, enjoyable life, then we can look at all of the difficulties that we have as a stepping stone to something greater that we're trying to achieve, which by definition will give us the resolve to handle, but also 
in addition to the resolve, it gives us the peace of mind to handle it with calm and to not become so stressed out because we don't know all the physical securities where from where they will come and how we're going to achieve everything, you know, easily, et cetera. We're not expecting things to be easy. And that's also a part and parcel definition of the name Israel as we have begun to learn. So let's now return to the storyline, understand a little bit about angels, and then we'll come back to understanding practically how this all pertains to us. Intrinsically, angels exist, and they are the instruments that Hashem uses to carry out his will. Though angels exist in a heavenly dimension, they traverse the physical and spiritual dimensions as warranted by their missions. That's certainly depicted by the latter in Yaakov's dream with angels going up and down. Right? That's why it's important to express that they're going up and down. Right? There's, a, there's a traversing of the worlds that happens by these angels. And as my father points out, when angels don a physical form or costume in this world here on planet Earth, they can even experience a modicum of choice. We find this to be the case in Sodom when they declare that they will destroy Sodom. That is something that the angels say, and the truth is that uh, they didn't have really the right to say that, but it's as though they're experiencing a modicum of choice, saying something they shouldn't necessarily say. Now, the reason that this is significant regarding angels, in other words, the reason that we need to understand it, is that it means that Hashem created angels with a constitution that can be affected by the physical realm. More importantly, as we see in our parsha, angels can even be given instructions by human beings. As per Rashi, Yaakov sends an actual message to be delivered by angels to his brother Esau, right? That's what's happening, right? And what's the message? Esau, I'm seeking to find favor in your eyes. I contend, however, that this ability for a human being to instruct angels is only if a human being possesses the paradigm that this physical world is one meant for transcendence and spiritual elevation as its ultimate purpose. When Yaakov leaves Lavan with a successful treaty of safe separation from Lavan, two things happen. One is that his wives and children now belong, so to speak, to Yaakov. They are bonded as a unique family structure distinct from Lavan's house. And therefore, they can now aspire to a building a world of elevation and nobility. That's what they want to do, right? That's separate from Lavan, because that's not what Lavan is looking to do in this world. And number two, they can only achieve their goal if Asaph is relegated from a looming danger to a non-threatening one. This is because in order for the Jewish nation to succeed in their quest to imbue humanity with a sense of purposefulness and nobility, they must convince Asaph to not attack them and destroy them. And the corollary of all this, and the reason it's especially important for us to understand, is that the Jewish people never, ever vied for the destruction of Asaph. This was never our goal. Or any nation, of course, except for Ambalek, for obvious reasons, to be discussed further another time, but as far as the Asaph nation as a whole, definitely not. The Jewish people are not looking to, you know, randomly kill or conquer Asav or any nation, because the Jewish mission is to cause all of humanity to elevate themselves to a higher purpose. And in fact, this is what we daven for. We say this right at the end of Sukkot de Zimra, before the Ishtabach. We say, based on a sentence in Ovaya, Ovadia chapter 1, sentence 21, saviors will arise in Sion to rule justly over Mount Seir and the kingship the monarchy will belong to Hashem, right? So ultimately what's going to happen is that the domination of the worldview of Yaakov over Esav will be complete. It will be absolute. And this is what Yaakov is planning to achieve. So Yaakov is sending a crystal clear message to Esav that despite the fact that Yaakov seeks purpose and transcendence, Yaakov only wishes Esav well. And he does not seek dominance over Asa. This is a message to Asa by angels, from angels, from Yaakov, that he's looking to find favor in Asa's eyes, right? And not only is he not looking to dominate Asa, his posture is the opposite. 
Yaakov treats Esav as though Esav is his master and demonstrates that Yaakov's success will benefit Esav directly. This is the purpose of all the animal gifts of Yaakov and of his family and himself repeatedly bowing and prostrating to Esav. It doesn't mean that Esav is actually his master in all areas, but it means as far as using this physical world to also help Esav, Yaakov is totally good with that. He wants that. He's not interested in owning everything in this world. He's happy and wants to give everybody in this world even material things. And he demonstrates that by doing that and saying, Esav, as far as this world, physical world is concerned, I'm happy to give to you. I'm not looking for control and dominance. The battle between the angel and Yaakov Avinu is specifically over the dominance of the transcendent spiritual realm over the physical realm, meaning which worldview will prevail in humanity? Do we look at the world as mundane and as physical and we seek to just have control over physical things? Or instead, do we look at the world as though everything, even the physical thing, physical things have a transcendent spiritual purpose? If Esau's paradigm wins, then Yaakov will not ultimately succeed in instilling the world with nobility and transcendence. The Esau paradigm is represented by an angel who appears to be a man because it is as though this angel will become more physical as he is ruled by the Esau paradigm. And the fact is that if that happens, then the world loses its dignity. The world loses its nobility. Now, I hate to say it, but if you just stop and think about what happens now in the world, we're, we're kind of looking for the humanity, the transcendence, the nobility, the moral fiber and character among the masses, right? It's very, very hard to find when the Israel paradigm, which is what we're about to get to, the Yaakov Avinu paradigm of transcendence over the physical is being pushed to the side and is being dominated and ruled. And we'll talk about, okay, well, how do we reassert dominance? If on the other hand, Yaakov prevails, then the angel will indeed remain an angel and continue to praise Hashem, as well as become subservient to Yaakov's worldview. Ultimate Yaakov Avinu is victorious and this man angel, right, is forced to remain under the dominance of Israel. And we see that in the story because the angel himself says, you have struggled with man and with gods, meaning angels, and succeeded, overcome, batuchal. And it's fascinating that the word Israel actually comes from the struggle, not from the success. I think most of us mistakenly look at the word Israel and we think officer, sire. But really the way that the word Israel is translated over here is to struggle, to contend, to fight, to argue, to wrestle. That's what the word is really coming to represent. The struggle that we have and that we persevere through the struggle eventually to overcome. So we can now perfectly understand why the name Israel is such a central theme and why it follows the Dina episode and tragedy. The silver lining of the Dina saga is the emergence of the self-proclaimed identity of Israel by B'nai Israel and that the rest of the world must know it and respect it. That's what's happening in the Dina story. She is violated and the brothers of Yaakov, of course, Yaakov himself, of course, is devastated. But what the brothers declare and what they carry out is that this cannot happen to Israel because if we don't represent the dignity and moral fiber of a human being, then it will cease to exist in the world in general. And that is the prelude to acquiring the name Yisrael for Yaakov and for us as a people. So thus, a very important lesson is, is that this messaging of human nobility and dignity must be our constant declaration to ourselves and response to others, friends, and enemies alike. So a very, very simple mundane example I'm going to give right now. If we don't work better on controlling our physical desires so that they serve a higher purpose, we are not acting like Israel. So whether it's food or other temptations, if we're not actually working on trying to use all of the physical world for something more transcendent than simply for our own pleasure, we are not declaring 
the dignity of the human being and what Yisrael is really meant to represent. So if we truly pay attention, there's another major point here, then we'll go back and make sure we answered all our questions, then I'll get to one more point and we'll be done. So if we truly pay attention to what the entire story of Yaakov is teaching us, and specifically the emergence of the name Yisrael, we, can, we should be able to see, and we can see, an almost glaring fact of the Israel existence. And that is, we cannot succeed as Yisrael without unified parents and children working together on the Jewish mission. Now, I know that's a tall order. I know it's really difficult to imagine. I know everybody has situations of relationship struggles, you know, whether it be directly with children or in-laws or whatever. Many of us have those challenges. And it's hard to think of a unified mission towards the concept of Israel, which is that we need to look at this world with a transcendent mindset. But if we dumb it down and we make it simple, and instead of saying we need to agree on everything, including who we're electing as president or anything else we're, for which we're voting, and instead we say, look, we need to look at this world as though there's a higher purpose, and we need to treat ourselves and every other human being with a tremendous dignity and respect, I think that is something that we can be aligned with our children. The only additional point is to try to inspire ourselves and our children that that's a goal of our existence. Now, that's not a small point. It's a big point. But it is clear that the name Yisrael in the entire saga that we have just been studying for last week and this week is that it only emerges when Yaakov not only has family, not only separates from Lavan, not only gets victorious, at least in theory, in principle over Esau and Esau's angel, but it's in fact when the Jewish people themselves feel this visceral attachment to the dignity of Israel as represented in the Dina story. When that happens, that's when the name Israel is a must. That's when Hashem tells Yaakov, go to Basel, because Basel is the place that Yaakov declared as the physical representation of the partnership that we have with Hashem in making this world a transcendent place. So our questions, why does Yaakov send messengers to Esau? Why not let sleeping dogs lie? The answer is because Yaakov needs to emerge into the identity of Israel. And the only way to do that is by convincing Esau that he is not a threat to Esau, instead he is a help to Esau. And this way Yaakov can then work on his own world mission of imbuing humanity with a sense of dignity and purpose. What is the major purpose of adding the name Israel to Yaakov? This is very key. The name Israel to Yaakov is an acquired name. It's not a genetic name because it depends on how we take our responsibility to build this world into a more transcendent place of purpose and human dignity and how we act on that together as a family, parents and children together. And why does Yaakov get this name specifically in Basel because that's the place that he had his dream with the ladder that he declares that this world is meant to be a place where we rise above. How do we understand the wrestling match between Yaakov and an angel? He needs to show Asa and also himself that the Jewish paradigm is to gain a dominance over the spiritual realm and use it for a higher purpose. And that is what the name Yisrael represents, overcoming people and even angels. And number four, this was our last question. What is the whole deal with angels in general? That's what we've been mentioning, that angels are meant to traverse both worlds and that ultimately in the Yaakov accomplishment is to gain a control and a domination over these spiritual forces so that he can use that in pursuit of accomplishing his mission in this world. So one last point, and I, I would like for everybody to think of it this way, and it's the first time I really gained an understanding to what I always consider to be a very troubling sentence in the Torah. If we look in Parshas Vayigash, when Yaakov Avinu is introduced by Yosef to Paro, Paro says to Yaakov, hey, how old are you? How old are the days and the years of your life? To which Yaakov says, the days of the years of my life are me'at they're few and they're, they're bad. 
and they haven't reached, they haven't reached the days of the years of my father's life, of my ancestors' lives. And I'm 130. And it always bothered me. And in fact, Yaakov, according to some commentaries, is punished for this statement. But it always bothered me. If you look at the life of Yaakov, we never find him complaining. The opposite. We mentioned how in this week's parsha, he has an attitude of gratitude, despite all of his terrible suffering and situations that he had to contend with, love and ace of etc. So why does he say this? What is going on? And it occurred to me that we have two measures for which to look at our life. How do we feel? What's our daily experience? Is it good or bad? How is your day? Was today a good day? Was today a bad day? That's what people mean. How is your day? Right? How is your day? Did you enjoy it or did you not enjoy it? And then we have a different measure. It's called the years of our lives. What did we accomplish? The year represents a slice of life and what did we accomplish in this lifetime? Yaakov is 100% correct. He had a bad life. Think of it. He had Esav. He had Lavan. He had 22 years of his son being kidnapped. How many days do you think Yaakov came home and said, oh, you know, today was a good day? Between everything that he had to deal with, was it ever a good day? No. But his life was full of accomplishment. His life was absolutely a complete rousing success of achievement. With all those years that he, he was worried about what happened with Yosef, at the end of the day, Yosef and the brothers reconciled to a very large extent, more on that a different time. And his life's mission of achieving Israel and instilling the world with a nation of people that have transcendence as their mission, as their mission was 100% accomplished. And that's the therefore of how we all need to understand the struggles of our lives. Yeah, it may not be pleasant. It may be really difficult. But what purpose are we trying to achieve? What's the transcendent goal? That is the only thing that counts. I know it's terrible to, to think of it that way because that means there might be a lot of pain. And we don't have to ask for pain and we can ask Hashem to relieve us of our pain. All of that is perfectly acceptable. It's not that we have a mission of suffering. We don't have to. Yes, unfortunately, in the Gullus, we do. But we don't have to always suffer as much as Yaakov Avinu did, etc. But we do have to remember that we have to keep our eye on the ball of what the real transcendent mission of existence is. And remember that the name Yisrael depends on struggling through it fighting through it, and ultimately the transcendent paradigm will prevail as what is most important in this world. Any questions or comments? Rabbi, uh, in working with younger teens, uh, specifically um, on this particular idea, do you have any suggestions in uh, ways to talk about transcendence that becomes relative to what they experience right now in their world, because the culture is so filled with other ideas. And um, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how to uh, really put this in the kind of language that they would relate to. I mean, for I, I think for most of us, uh, you know, it, it's very easy and it makes a lot of sense. I'm just questioning for a child, particularly that's not in a firm environment or in a public school, how this kind of inspirational language could, uh, the nobility and coping, you know. So I, you know, if you can kind yeah. of add to that, I'd appreciate it. Sure, no, that's a great question, very important question. Um, okay, so some ideas that come to my mind are that one of the major challenges of teenagers, young people today is self-esteem uh, because the world does rate everything by success instead of by, uh, you know, character development and let's just call it being a good person. Uh, and the things that are valued in society are not things of enduring quality. They are things of temporary um, significance, flashes in the pan, and really don't have staying power. And I think teenagers can understand that. I think it's not difficult for them to understand that beauty lasts a very limited amount of time Money also very often lasts a very limited amount of time. Fame, maybe even quicker than that. And that they need to ask themselves, do they want to measure their own significance as a human being by what other people are measuring as important? Or are they willing to stop and think 
and look at what may actually be more important to them. And that is the, or I should say, and those are the concepts of my worth derived from my ability to positively impact other people. What does it mean to positively impact other people? To be kind to them, to share education with them, to make them feel good. And again, to make people feel good for enduring qualities rather than you know, uh, things that, that quickly disappear. I think that even teenagers can understand that. Uh, although, yeah, it's extremely challenging because can you get their attention? <laughs> you know, that's another problem. No, no, I'm talking about those that I specifically to those that are listening who are already in the place where they're willing to hear. You know, they're, they're outside, but you know, it's a something and, and a deeper, a deeper conversation. Yeah, which which is hard to have, and definitely psychologists recommend not really talking about it so much. Are suicides, um, and certainly if suicides have recently happened in the environs, I would suggest not talking about it. But as a general, because there, there's some kind of crazy psychological phenomenon, you know, where people think about it and it becomes more real and more possible. Um, but assuming that you're dealing with a relatively healthy situation where that's not a concern to talk in general, that, you know, people are self-inflicting pain and God forbid even worse uh, because they don't really understand their true value is something that I think teenagers should definitely be able to understand. Thank you, Rabbi. Sure. like Lily's pressing a button. There we go. Rabbi, um, I, could you explain a little bit this thing about the angels? Because it seems like Yaakov had like, um, I don't know, help, you know, or, or like w we don't seem to see angels. I'd like to find out where they, how I can get in touch with them. <laughs> Not to be cute, but like, I'm just, where are these angels? I'm not sure what you were referring to when yeah, you were talking. So, so we don't really directly uh, so much experience these angels. That's true. At least it seems that way. Um, and then there's some theories on that that we can discuss uh, perhaps now. Um, but I would say that assuming you accept the notion, Lily, that angels, as they were presented to Yaakov, more, more relevant then and less relevant now, then we can continue. So in other words, before there's a Jewish nation, uh, angels are possibly a lot more relevant. Once there's a Jewish nation, even though we do have talk of angels, we don't really have them so much in the Torah as a practical matter, very rarely. Like they're very prominent here and very rarely later. And perhaps the simple answer to your question is that the Jewish people become the angels. In other words, the great Jews that you know that actually adopt the Israel paradigm are able through their attachment to the spiritual to be angelic and to bring a, a certain kind of not only uh, accomplishment in this world, but an example of the, the transcendent ability of a human being. Uh, okay. Uh, did you hear me, Rabbi? Yeah, yes, I can hear you. Um, wait a second. I don't know what happened. I lost. Okay. Okay. Rabbi, also, if I might ask another question, I was, I don't exactly, like the only people, like only Israel do I hear about being the helper, trying to help, you know, I mean, I'm sure other countries do too, but. Israel is the one that I hear about with the, you know, going a different humanitarian crisis, but I don't, I'm not exactly sure where I see this uh, transcendence, uh, transcendental situation in the world. You're right. It, it's very hard to find, but here's the big, big hidden secret that needs to be um, revealed for what everybody used to know. The United States of America is built on this concept of human dignity and purpose. The Declaration of Independence and the articles of the Federalist Papers are very much built on these ideologies. The problem is, is that we, you know, we've experienced a lot of darkness since that light. 
And really that does need to be brought out to the fore. The big question is, are there enough Americans who want to accept that that currently don't versus the Americans that already understand that? I'm hoping and praying that it's the first and not the latter, but I don't know. But that's one of my uh, contentions of what needs to happen is that many papers and writings and articles need to be produced, uh, disseminating the truth of American ideology as it was first presented by what we call the founding fathers of this country. And it's very much about godliness and human dignity. Very, very much. And with all the questions about slavery and racism notwithstanding, because there exist, they exist, and you know, those questions are legitimate. I'm not denying that. I'm saying we need to go back to the roots of that ideology. Okay. Thank you. But if you look at the world and say, was it influenced by this, uh, you know, by this kind of thinking, what we would call the transcendent uh, worldview, there's just no question. Uh, unbelievably influenced for the positive over many centuries. I'm not saying there weren't also bad things, bad things. Yes, I know we could talk about, you know, how this world was one and, you know, very, very you know, so on and so on. There's lots of things to, to point at that were problematic. But there's so much to point at that was fantastic and great at the same time. Yeah, I think my own little observation is that, like, um, they're always trying to point out how the United States in a way was like imperial. I don't know, the point is to like conquer other people or like to impose their rule on other people. But I guess people could actually see the same thing when you see what the communist China is trying to do as well. I don't know how they could, it's the same thing. So I, I'm just trying to figure out how you can point that out and then at the same time show the difference through this. Yeah, I, I wish I could agree with you that it was the same thing. And, and that's something I wish I could agree with you that it was the same thing and not something much more horribly horrific. But your point is well taken. <laughs>